Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit caron.org slash lost. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. Brett McKay here and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. You've heard of the seven habits of highly effective people, but did you know that its author, Stephen Covey, wasn't in his late 50s when it came out? After it became a monumental bestseller, Covey continued to work on new book ideas, one of which encapsulated his own experience with late in life success and his commitment to having an ever forward-looking attitude. A decade after his death, that book has finally been brought to fruition by Stephen's daughter, Cynthia Covey Haller. It's called Live Life in Crescendo. Your most important work is always ahead of you. And its contents really represent the capstone habit to those that came before. Today on the show, Cynthia unpacks the crescendo mentality and how it represents a commitment to continual learning, growth, and change that you can adopt at any age. We discuss how embracing the crescendo mentality is particularly important in midlife, why that stage of life can be uniquely challenging, whether you've achieved success or are struggling, and the shifts people in each of these situations can make to find greater fulfillment. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash crescendo. All right, Cynthia Covey-Holler, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Brett. I'm thrilled to be on with you. So you are the daughter of the late Stephen Covey of Seven Habits of Highly Effective People fame, and you co-authored a book with him, started co-authoring a book with him before he passed away called Live Life in Crescendo. Your most important work is always ahead of you. And I'm looking forward to talking about this book. But before we do, I'm curious, uh, my wife and I often wonder, what was it like growing up as a Covey? You know, was it, I don't know if you've ever read the book, uh, Cheaper by the Dozen, where it's, you know, this guy, <laughs> yeah. like the, the dad and mom are like efficiency experts and they use their kids as a laboratory for all their stuff they use for, you know, the companies they consult. Was it like that as a kid? <laughs> uh, in a way, <laughs> guinea pigs. <laughs> no, you know, we, we had nine, there were nine kids. I'm the oldest of nine. So it was a little wild and crazy, but my parents made the priority to my parents was our family. And so each of us felt like we had an important part to play with them. And somehow they managed to have each of us feel like we were important and that we, we mattered. And with nine kids, I think that's pretty tough. I had six and sometimes I'd think to myself, gosh, I don't think I've talked to one of my, you know, one of my, my younger one or the middle one for a day or two. So, you know, I think that they really, when they made a mistake, if they ever lost their temper or if they things didn't go well and they didn't handle it well, they were humble enough to apologize to us. They would say, I, I'm sorry, I blew it. I shouldn't have overreacted. 
you know, you're right. You, that was a good point you made. And, and when we'd start over and I really appreciated that. And I tried to implement that when I raised my own kids, because you're not perfect. You know, you're, you're just learning as you go along. And, but I, I felt like more than anything, they really tried to walk the talk. They tried to teach us what, true to their values and what they believed. And when they felt, they just kind of said they were sorry and we started over. Uh, so let's talk about the story behind this book. So you started working on this book with your father before he died. But when did your father get the idea for this book? You know, clear back in 2008 is when I, I talked to my dad about it. He told me he was working on several different books and projects right then. And he told me about Live Life for Crescendo, which at the time was his personal mission statement, probably the last 10 years of his life. And I think he adapted that because people were asking him, gosh, you're in your 60s, Steve, when are you going to, you know, you're going to keep doing this for long or how much more do you have in you? And that would really annoy him. He just think, you know, I, I still have so much more to contribute. Why I'm going to, I still feel passionate about it. I feel like I'm making a difference. Why would I stop? And so anyway, he asked me when we were talking about all these different projects, if I would help him with this Live Life for Crescendo book and by writing the stories and examples of people that either lived in crescendo or the opposite lived in diminuendo. And I can explain those, those terms a little further later. But Brett, I think this was prompted because I foolishly asked him one time, are you going to ever write anything like the seven habits again? You know, <laughs> is this, you know, is this going to be the best thing you've ever written? And in a way, it kind of insulted him, that question. He said, gosh, I wrote that in 1989. And so why do I get up every day if I don't intend to produce and contribute more besides the seven habits? Now, the seven habits may be my most prolific work, and maybe I'll be most known by that, but I still have so much more to contribute and ideas and books in my head that, that, um, that motivates me to keep going. And that was the, that's the crescendo mentality of way of thinking, a paradigm that your most important work is still ahead of you, despite where you've been. So it was kind of a, you, he threw down the gauntlet. He's like, all right, you don't think I can do anything better. Well, you're going to work with me on this thing. <laughs> that's right. I kind of, yeah. And so like, okay, you can take care of Live Life for Crescendo <laughs> and make it um, kind of a different book than he'd written before. Because like I said, it is filled with practical stories of famous and non-famous people to show people that, gosh, I can see myself in this. I can do that. I can make my life better than it is now. I can keep contributing. And so he wanted me to, to do that for him. So we worked on it together. I interviewed him many times through the next few years. And then he unexpectedly, and I explain this later in the book, but he died way before we ever thought he would. And I had promised him that I would, I would finish this for him. So to me, it's kind of been a sacred stewardship. My goal was to be a faithful translator of his vision for Live Life from Crescendo. And I worked on it for about 10 years after he's passed away for 10 years now. But I'm, I have six kids and lots of grandkids, and I had some church jobs and community jobs that kept me from writing full-time, but it took a while, and I'm finally thrilled to talk Simon & Schuster into publishing his last book. 
I said, you published his first book in, in 89, now publishes last. And they were excited about it. So here it is. <laughs> yeah, and what you what I loved about you did this book, you wrote in his voice. Yes. And then every now and then you'd interject, like, this is Cynthia. Here's my what I want to say about it. But that was really it was really fun. It was like I'm I was reading something from the beyond. It was really cool. Well, I, I feel like well, my greatest compliment has been if people say I can hear your dad's voice. And that's because a lot of those are his very words through interviews and through other writings that aren't as well known and different things. But I want it's his idea. It was his unique idea, Live Life from Crescendo. So I wanted to write it from his perspective. So I, I hope I accomplished that. So you said uh, your dad had this idea of the crescendo mentality because he was tired of people telling him like, oh, you know, when are you going to retire? And, <laughs> yeah. you know, but when he talked to you about it, how do you describe like what was the crescendo mentality? Well, I love the analogy. It's a musical analogy. And everyone asks us, oh, are you, your family very musical? And my dad couldn't sing at all. I'm even worse. <laughs> my mom has a beautiful singing voice. But crescendo in music, that symbol, if you look at the symbol, it starts at a point and then the two lines spread outward. And if you've ever been to a concert, a crescendo is fantastic. It grows in energy and influence and power and gets louder and it's and it's so amazing to hear. It's very powerful and and it swells and it fills the whole arena wherever you're listening. And in the same way, uh, diminuendo, in the opposite way actually, diminuendo starts wide. The symbol starts wide, two lines apart, and then it comes to a point, and it slows in power and energy and influence, and it eventually, literally, comes to a stop. And so the idea of crescendo, it's like your Art of Manliness podcast, Brett. You use the word, maybe you can say it for me, eudaimonia. Yeah, eudaimonia. Eudaimonia, which you describe as skill, flourishing, excellence, virtue. This is synonymous with crescendo. It means that you keep learning, you keep striving, you keep, you may have to redefine yourself, you may have to start over, but you keep increasing in what you learn and what you're contributing as you go along in your in your life even as you get older to the very end of your life that's the goal where the diminuendo is you're you know you're satisfied with where you are that you stop learning and growing and trying and experimenting and you basically just give up you just stop and accept what life has handed you which may not be good and you don't contribute anymore your influence comes to an end where crescendo, the exact opposite is true. And it sounds like your father was living this principle. I mean, he had like 10 projects going on before he died. And what, how else was he, like, you know, what did he, beyond just doing stuff with the Seven Habits and the, the Franklin Covey company, like what else was he doing in his second half of life? Well, like you said, he was going a mile a minute. You know, he was going like crazy with different projects and books not to say that he neglected his most important roles, which was in his family, and that was a top priority to him. But from 89, when he did Seven Habits, he later produced the third alternative, the Eighth Habit. And I don't know what it is with numbers, <laughs> him and numbers, but the Eighth Habit, find your voice and help others find theirs. And then Live Life from Crescendo, this great book, I mean, this is evidence alone of his belief in this crescendo mentality which is kind of like a pair of glasses or a perspective, a, a paradigm that you see everything through at any age and stage of your life. The crescendo mentality sees the opportunity 
to change and improve and and get better. And in his own life, he kind of went through his own midlife crisis, if you could call it that. I don't know if he would have labeled it like that, but looking back to me, it was. He was at a university and had been teaching for 20 years in organizational behavior, and it was very successful. In fact, it was the the class to take on campus. They said that if you you didn't take this class, you didn't get a degree. And so he was an influential professor and with nine kids, you know, you don't make a lot as a professor, but you know, it was, it was a steady income and job. And yet he felt like I've got more to give. And at this time he was developing the seven habits material and teaching it to his students. And he didn't feel like they were really grasping and applying it. You know, they couldn't apply it in the marketplace, in the workplace, where he really wanted to see how this would work. And so he started doing some consulting on the side, and it was hard to do both. And so he he and my mom decided we got to, you know, you, you may say he was a little bit stagnant and felt like I got something's holding me back. I've got to keep growing, and I feel like I have more to contribute. And so he kind of took a leap of faith and put his house and cabin in Hawk and just went out on his own, Stephen Covey and Associates, and later became Covey Leadership Center, but did his own business consulting. And and for several years, it was a little scary, his own business and just starting out and left his comfortable job as a professor. But if he never would have done that, he never would have written the books that he did and the influence that he had throughout the whole world if he hadn't have taken that leap and decided that, yeah, I have more to contribute and I'm going to take a little bit of a risk and and go with it and see what happens. And that was when he was in his low 50s, you know, so definitely in the midlife stage. But that was inspiring to look back and think, you know, he had his own uh, chance to decide, am I going to, you know, live in diminuendo? Am I becoming stagnant? Or should I choose to live in crescendo and, and go for this new opportunity? Well, you talk about in the book, I like how you organize the book. Um, you start off, there's a section about midlife. And that's the moment where a lot of people have that decision, like your dad did. I can either live in crescendo or diminuendo. Like, what is it about midlife that causes you to like, that kind of forces that choice on you? You know, that's a good question, Brett, because that's where a lot of people struggle. I think I think everyone does it sometime, the midlife stage of life where, you know, you kind of meet where you are with what you hoped you would be. And maybe you feel like, you know, I haven't been successful. I, I haven't made a lot of money. I'm not, I don't have the career I wanted. Maybe you're divorced and I feel like you're failing in your family roles. Maybe you haven't achieved what you, what you dreamed of. And you kind of wake up and think, wow, I, you know, what can I do? I'm 50 and I'm not where I wanted to be. And so my, uh, we, we identify two perspectives in this midlife stage. And one is to see true success for what it is without comparison to others. Society defines success so differently to how we're defining it here, which is that success is, is working to be successful in your most important roles in life, in the roles that have great value to you. Uh, most of those found in the family roles, but also in humanitarian work. You know, sometimes you're more successful than you think you are. I give the example of George Bailey and It's a Wonderful Life. We all know that story. 
so well. He thought he was, he didn't think he was successful. He thought he was kind of a failure because he didn't make a lot of money and he never left Bedford Falls and he never accomplished what he wanted to be. But yet when he was taken out of it, when the angel said, okay, it's like you've never been born, he saw and the angel says, what a big hole it leaves when you're not there. You really did have a wonderful life. He saw that he was important in all these people's lives and how much it meant to them to be able to get a decent home to live in and how he treated them. And, and you know, he eventually comes back and his everybody saves him from financial ruin, repaying all the kindnesses that he's given through the years. And his brother toasts him to the to the most successful, the greatest man in town. And so sometimes we are successful, but not by how society would measure it. And then the second perspective is, if you you don't like your job, if you feel like you're in a dead-end career, if you have relationship problems in your family and you feel like you're struggling, identify what needs to be improved and changed in your life and courageously and proactively bring it about. Use what my father called resourcefulness and initiative. He called it R&I. And make it happen. And I tell a story about, you know, a principal who's who has a great vision for his school, but yet he is weighs almost 400 pounds and his physical health is so bad that he can hardly make it through the day and how he takes control of that and decides I can choose, you know, to have this vision for our school, but I have to take care of myself first and and how he gets in shape and and loses 150 pounds and actually becomes a marathon runner and and changes his his whole life and and therefore the school and his influence in the students or a lawyer who all of a sudden loses his job he formed a company and his partners force him out and he's 47 years old with four kids and no career well he has to look at himself and think you know what am i going to do am i going to just be bitter and end it here am i going to make a difference anymore? What What are my choices? He chooses a crescendo mentality and determines to go to law school at 47, the oldest in his class by far. And he tells of, of coming into the law school parking lot one cold winter morning at five in the morning when it's freezing and it's pitch dark and doom and despair comes over him. And he thinks, what have I done? You know, what, what am I going to do? How can I make it? And he determines to use his R&I and to dig deep and to see this through to the end and graduates in two and a half years and sets up a practice at 49, almost 50, and within a year or two has more work than he can handle. So sorry to take a long time to answer, but in the midlife stage, you have to determine, am I going to choose the crescendo mentality and keep learning and expanding and redefining myself? Or am I going to accept my fate, what's happened to me, and live in diminuendo? And you know, this is this is what this is the end. It's really a choice. Yeah, and I thought that was interesting. The idea that one of the problems of midlife is we find out that maybe, like how your dad uses like the measuring stick that we were using to gauge our life was the wrong one. Right. Maybe, like maybe that measuring stick you were using about career and you know, sort of the external stuff was useful early on in your life. So that's that it's important to get a job and things like that. But at a certain point it stops becoming useful. And then you have to decide I'm gonna make a shift to a different measuring stick. Right. And that was Clay Christensen, Clay Christensen, who with how do you measure your life? Saying you have to use the right measuring stick. You know, he he was at Harvard with a lot of his friends 
And, you know, the first five years of the reunion, they were all starting out with families and doing well, starting their businesses. And then within 10 and 15 years, they meet together again. And a lot of them are divorced and their families live across the country and they feel they're, they're very successful, some of them, but they never thought that their family wouldn't be along on this journey and that they'd use the wrong measuring stick to measure success and kind of determining how are you going to measure your life? And my father defines it by being successful in your most important roles. And I guess, I mean, I imagine, I don't know if you talked to your father about this, when he was talking about success after the seven habits of highly effective people, was it in terms of like, well, I got to make another, like a book that sells more than the seven habits of highly effective people? Or was it like he had a, he had a, a what was his measuring stick for success in his work that he did? To make a difference, to make a contribution. That was always the priority to him. It was never about money or prestige. That was a, a side thing that, that came with success. But it was, he believed really strongly that life is about contribution, not accumulation. And he felt like, I have so many, um, some other ideas, like this idea of the crescendo mentality and of find your voice and help others find theirs that can give hope to people, that can help them realize their worth and potential and hopefully see it in themselves. His best best definition of leadership was communicating to another's worth and potential so clearly that they are inspired to see it in themselves. And that's what that was his whole mission, really, to, to unleash human potential and greatness within every person. And a part of shifting that contribution mindset is your dad was a big believer in making service the priority of your life. Right. The service mindset, you know, it naturally grows. We have a crescendo mentality. You become service oriented. You become a mentor to someone in your office that's struggling or to maybe you look around and you see a, a grandchild who is addicted to drugs or substances, or is failing in school, or maybe you've got a neighbor that admires you, and that a younger person that that you can help mentor, that you you look at life through the contribution mentality. A great quote, and I called it kind of the mission statement of the book, is a quote by Pablo Picasso: "The meaning of life is to find your gift; the purpose of life is to give it away." And um, that can help you in a midlife struggle to, to look outward, to focus on others. It can help you in the other areas we identify, pinnacle of success, life-changing setbacks, and the second half of life, the other areas that we'll probably discuss that as you look outward and serve other people, you're able to find a lot of purpose in your life also as you make a difference in others. And it helps you with your own problems. I remember hearing my father talk about an orphanage in India that was doing so well. The kids coming out of it were going to college and were, you know, really contributing and wonderful people. And he talked to the woman in charge who kind of was, you know, supervising the curriculum and all that and what was happening with them. And she said, the only thing I can really identify is that we would challenge them when they were outside the orphanage to find someone in a worse situation than they were and to help them. And focusing on others and looking outward and serving is, is a key to happiness and a key to your own success. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. 
wedding season is coming up. And if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. And now back to the show. Okay, so if you're approaching midlife and you're feeling that sort of midlife malaise where you just think, well, you know, things, I'm just kind of feeling uh, restless, I'm not, worried, not sure what to do next. The key there is think of that crescendo mentality, you have more to offer, and then shift to like maybe first figure out if you're using the right measuring stick. Right. Uh, and then also use that resourcefulness and initiative. Well, there's, you also talk, so you mentioned there's two outcomes could possibly be facing in midlife. The first is the pinnacle of success and then a big setback. Well, let's talk about the pinnacle of success. Some people will think, well, you're a success. Like what problems could you have based on your experience and just what your father's done in his research? What, what problems come at midlife when you've, you've got everything? You got a house, your family, career's good. What are the problems that can happen? Okay. Before I answer that, let me just tell you something funny from our family about R and I. As kids, we hated when my dad would say, "Use your R and I," because we couldn't have any excuses. You know, we'd come home from school and say, "Oh, I hate my math teacher. I'm flunking math. He's he's awful." We'd try to blame other people, and he'd say, "Well, what does that have to do with it? Use your R and I." And we're like, "Oh." Gosh, Dad, you don't know. This guy's really bad, and he doesn't care about me, and he doesn't know how to explain math. Oh, you know, not 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 your problem. Use your R and I and make it happen. <laughs> and so we were just like, oh, we could never blame other things. We had to take responsibility for it, and we kind of joked that we had a well balanced parents because we our mom sometimes would let us blame other people <laughs> and would take our side and say, oh, that's terrible. That math teacher, why well, he doesn't know who he's dealing with, or you know, she'd take our side a little bit. So if we wanted our heart massage would go to our mom and we wanted to know the truth and how to solve our problems would go to our dad. (laughs) It was a good, it was a good um, combination and a good mix, (laughs) but, but pinnacle of success, that's, uh, you know, that's a great opportunity of, you know, like you say, maybe you build a successful career and you have a home and you're, and you're even making good money and you feel good about it and you've accomplished a lot. Well, so what's next? You know, do you, do you sit on your laurels? And, and that's kind of what my dad was challenged when he wrote Seven Habits. Is, is this what is this all you've got? You know, are you going to produce anything else? So the tendency with reaching the pinnacle of success is after you've reached it is to coast and to relax and to look in the rearview mirror at what you've accomplished and, you know, be proud of it and happy and pat yourself on the back, which there's nothing wrong with that for a time. But what about looking forward? What's to come? He always used the analogy of don't look in the rearview mirror. So say that you're driving in a car 
and you're looking in your rearview mirror or even over your shoulder at what you've just left rather than looking ahead. Well, pretty soon you're going to end up in a ditch. You can't drive that way. So we always would say, look forward, look ahead. And one of the best examples I can think of this, we gave a lot of famous people examples and and regular everyday people, but Jimmy Carter just comes to mind. Jimmy Carter was not reelected, did not earn a second term. And imagine the humiliation of that going back to Plains, Georgia. He had a real choice, you know, to live in crescendo or diminuendo. And most presidents at that point, you know, kind of retire. They give expensive speeches and they might build a library in their name and different things. But Carter, within a year, he and Rosalind had established the Carter Center for Peace. And then the, the two of them have been the face of Habitat for Humanity. I mean, they're both in their 90s and yet up until a year or two ago, extremely active in you know, this housing for for people that can't afford it and all the involvement that President Carter has had in history will not judge him as a great president. He had the, the hostage situation and had so many hard things during his tenure, but he is the, the best post-president we've ever had. So truly, his most important work was really ahead of him. And he sees that you'd think the pinnacle of success is being the president of the United States, but actually, no, it's been his humanitarian work. And so people who have been successful, you're in the greatest opportunity right then to bless others' lives in other areas. You've got the experience and the, and maybe the financial clout and the determination and the know-how to really bring some great things about. So why not lend it towards something else that could benefit other people and have that to have your story be helping other people like Mohammed Yunus with the Grameer Bank and, and micro loans. I mean, look at, look at the success that he's brought to thousands and thousands of people because of his determination to help with poverty. And what, what is, you know, there couldn't be anything more successful than helping other people succeed. So it sounds like if you're at that pinnacle of success in your life, sort of mid part of your life, and you're thinking like, what's next? What's next is become generative, right? Make right. other, grow other, help other people grow. Right. Yes. F- find your voice and help others find theirs. You know, Paul Newman is another person that had an amazing career in acting. And yet his most important work was literally his humanitarian work with, he was embarrassed. He said, I, I'm embarrassed that I made more money on my salad dressings than I did on my movies. <laughs> but he determined, he saw so much need and thought, if I can market this dressing and these other products and give it all away, that was his motto, let's give it all away. He said, you can only stuff so much in your closet. <laughs> so let's give it away to to charities And so far, he has donated $730 million to thousands of deserving charities, doing so much good and making an imprint in life. And he tells of one story. He has these uh, camps, these family camps, and and he passed away in 2008, but his um, foundation is still carrying on his good work. So he established these family camps for children who have terminal diseases and sicknesses are in the hospital much of the year. And it's the largest family camps in the world. And kids can go free to these camps. 
for a whole week and enjoy all the things that you do in camping and really, you know, be kids, forget about their illnesses and their sicknesses and just enjoy, kick back and be a, a child again. And uh, he said one day he was walking to the dining hall and a little girl took his hand and said, you know, Mr. Newman, this is the week I wait for all year. This is what I live for. And he said, what could be greater applause than that? That's what that's what you want to hold your hand out to those who are less fortunate and be able to meet and meet their needs. So, you know, he's Paul Newman and, and the other ones have a lot of money and clout, but others that have reached pinnacle of success. Look around you in your families, in your neighborhoods, in your community. Where can you lend that great, the knowledge and things that you've accomplished by being so successful? What can you next lend that to and bless others? Well, another possible outcome in midlife is that you have a big setback. Could be divorce, could be your career's over, your business goes bankrupt, you get sick, a loved one gets sick. But even in those situations, when things can seem just utterly hopeless, you say people can still keep that crescendo mentality. And in a, a person that your father looked to as you know, someone who exemplified this, of finding hope even when things seemed hopeless, was Viktor Frankl. Uh, he loved to quote Viktor Frankl. And that's because this is a guy who was in a terrible, terrible situation, right? He was in a Nazi concentration camp, but he still tried to find meaning in it. He always taught that you can't choose what happens to you. You can't choose your circumstance and your situation, but you can choose how to react to that. And he learned that from Viktor Frankl, who in the midst of his torture and struggles had the wherewithal to see himself, to envision himself years later teaching to uh, fellow students in psychology exactly what he was going through, what he's experiencing right then. He saw himself years later having a great purpose and a work to do. And that's what he found. He said it, he said it was surprised when he had analyzed why people would survive, who would survive and who wouldn't. And he said the, the main thing that they found is that if someone had a why to live, they could manage anyhow. He said for one person, he had his why and his purpose was a child that was alive in another country that was waiting for him all alone, and he knew it, and he wanted to survive for that child. For another man, it was a great scientific experiment that he was halfway through before he was arrested and imprisoned, and he wanted he knew that he he could solve this scientific problem that would help with save people's lives. And he wanted to get back to finish that. So they definitely had a why to live and they could manage anyhow. And so my father always taught that life is a mission and not a career. And that Viktor Frankl taught that you detect, you don't, you don't invent, but you detect your own mission, individual mission within you through listening to your conscience and through being very aware of needs around you. And as you detect your own mission and purpose, then you can fulfill it. We can bring it about and offer something only you can offer. Each of us has something important to give and to contribute. We need to detect it, take the time and make the effort to find out what that is and then bring it about. You got to use that R&I. 
Right, use your R and I. Use your R and I in a positive way. We like it now. We tell it to our kids now, and they hate it too. You 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 give an example from your own family of someone who dealt with a really terrible setback, and that's your brother Sean. Yes. Tell us. Can you tell us about that? And how did he use these principles from your your father's work to help him and his family navigate that problem? Right. At the end of the book, I tell three different stories, experiences of our family having to practice what we preach here and live in crescendo ourselves. Sometimes you look at other people and think, oh, they don't have any problems or issues, but all of us have things that we struggle with. And if you haven't had a setback yet, you just haven't lived long enough, <laughs> it'll come. So determine how you're going to respond beforehand. My brother, Sean, this was a really hard thing for him and his wife, Rebecca, and also our whole family. But his oldest daughter of eight kids passed away at 21 from effects of depression. And this was devastating to the entire family. And somebody told him, not meaning this to come across the wrong way, but they said, you know, Sean, it's sad, but you'll always have a big hole in your heart because of what happened to Rachel. And it's that's just kind of how it is. It's going to be a big hole there. And Sean thought about that and thought, no, that's that's not right. I'm going to grow a muscle there. It's not going to be a hole. And he decided, he, he thought about that I have three choices really in this situation. I can let this destroy me. I can let it define me. Or I can let it strengthen me. And he chose, and so did Rebecca, to let it strengthen them. And so what they did was they, they were talking to some of Rachel's friends and found that, well, they, they knew that she'd always, she had a passion for horses. She said she found her voice when she was riding horses and it was, it helped her with her depression and with things that she was experiencing. And her friends came to them and said, you know, Rachel, I was at a low point and Rachel took me horseback riding and it, it helped me so much. It, it changed my life. It, it helped me deal with some of my problems. And so they determined to do make something good out of what had happened and help others. And they talked openly about her passing away from depression. They got that out there that, that this is what took her life. And uh, it freed other people to express that also, that that had happened to their families. And then they decided to start um, a place called Bridal Up Hope that has focuses on equestrian training because somehow horses and and girls and working with horses is therapeutic and can really help people who are struggling, especially with anxiety and depression and abuse and, and setbacks like that. And so they set up Bridle Up Hope. And then they also, the first component is the equestrian training. The second component is learning some life skills. My brother, Sean, wrote Seven Habits of Highly Effective Teens, which is my dad's material of seven habits for people, but but specifically for teenagers. That's really a, a great book that teaches life skills. So they go through these 13 or 14 classes and learn how to handle a horse. And they have these life lessons that that teach you about taking control of the horse, like taking control of your life and, and choosing to be a leader and different things. Then they learn life skills through the seven habits for teens. And the last component is service. They give back. They help muck out stalls. They, they help 
teach other people. They mentor, they do, they give back. And so it's been 10 years and a thousand girls, more than a thousand girls have gone through this program. And many of them have said after that it changed their life and actually saved their life. I think 93% of the parents said that this was life-changing for their child. And so in their in their sorrow and this enormous life-changing experience that they had, they chose crescendo mentality. And now it is blessing thousands of young girls who similarly struggle. So they found the why, and then they used the resourcefulness and initiative and made something good happen. Yes. So we've been talking about middle age, kind of how to navigate some of the problems that can happen there. But let's say you get past middle age, right? You're like in your late 60s, 70s, you're retired. And like, I know a lot of our listeners are probably not there, but you're going to be at that age at some point. So you got to think about this now. What are the challenges there that you face in trying to live life in crescendo and how can you counter those challenges? Right, Brett, you mentioned, and, and I love the I love the mission of your of your work. You know, to it's exactly living in crescendo for men, encouraging and challenging men to produce more and to assimilate what they learn and to be successful in their most important roles. And and it's a you know it's a great mission. I've got to say, Brett, that you're about. I can see that it's something that is important to you and your wife after reading about it and. And I just wanted to compliment you on that. It's it's inspiring for me to read about it. Well, thank you so much. But, you know, my father always co- quoted Peter Drucker and, and Abraham Lincoln was also attributed to this quote, so we don't know who it is. But he said, the best way to predict your future is to create it. And so if men are in their 30s, 40s, 50s, or whatever, they're not in the second half of life stage that we call it now then it's important to look ahead and think, how, how am I going to determine, how am I going to respond when I am old, older? And my father said it was a false dichotomy that society gives you to choose, keep working or retire. And he said the third alternative is make a contribution, which you can do while you're still working, which he chose to do into his, his 70s. And he would have kept going if he hadn't have passed away. But we all know people that are still very active and contribute in their 70s, 80s, 90s even, and are working, happy to do that. And then others, if they choose to retire from a job, or he said, retire from your job or career, but never retire from making meaningful contributions to others. And in our family, retire was a bad word, the R word. <laughs> we didn't say it. It was, a, it was a, a bad word because in society, it means to basically live in diminuendo and shut down, don't accomplish a lot, don't, don't give. But let me tell you a story of a person named Mike Mason that I just heard about, 63-year-old man from Virginia who served his country, was a captain in the Marines and then became the number four man in the FBI and uh, was in the FBI for many years, you know, sometimes representing the FBI by speaking and pretty really high up. And then he retired from that and became an executive in a Fortune 100 company, finally was finished with his career. And he said, I retired to the, as a COO of a rocking chair and retirement did not sit well. (laughs) He said, I still had a mind and had things I was capable of doing. He said, but I determined if I was going to do something, it had to be very important and have a big payout and worthy of my time. And he said, the, the choice was clear. 
He looked around in Virginia in his Chesterfield County School District and found that bus drivers were down 125 drivers. And so he he gave his resume. He turned in his resume to become a bus driver. <laughs> and somebody up high uh, called him and said, um, "I'm just checking. You're you're seriously going to you know you probably would be the most qualified school driver in America. You've been the number four man in the FBI, and now you're going to be a bus driver." And he said that there are no unimportant jobs here. He said, what could be more important than the attention we give to our education system? He said, so yes, I'm accepting this job and I I am continuing to advance in my career. <laughs> I love how he said that. So he advances in his career by taking a $30,000 job, uh, which he donated the money to charity. And he is transporting kids to school, which he felt like that's an important thing, the, our education system. So anyway, I, I really, you know, in the second half of life, that's the time where you have the most wisdom, the most experience, the most time, maybe the most money and influence and the most knowledge to really contribute. So are you going to, you know, retire to Florida and, and lay out and drink pina coladas and enjoy yourself and rest? where uh, some uh, a Dr. Selvig says that you will get retirement disease kills people. <laughs> he said that you need you stress in your life, and that's the helpful, beneficial stress. So you need to have, you know, a lot of people's tendency is to pull away socially and to not be as engaged as they are when they were working in a job or a career. But it's better to go with your foot fully on the accelerator rather than to go and idle. You need to keep contributing. All right. So shift from career to contribution. And then another th principle your dad talks about in the second half of life is focus on creating memories. What do you mean by that? That would go back to your most important roles, creating memories with people that are important to you, the experiences. And part of it could be in serving together create lasting memories. Like maybe I'll, I'll share one with you that's personal to me. I shared in the book. When I was 12 years old, my father invited me to go on a trip with him for his work to San Francisco. And for a 12-year-old who lived in Salt Lake City to go to San Francisco and hear about the famous trolley cars he described and all the wonderful things that they had there, this was just magical. And so for a few months, we Part of the fun was talking about it and planning what we were going to do. And so the plan was that after his after his speech, his presentation, he said, oh, you've heard me before. Just just go swimming at the hotel and, and do what you want during the day. And then come join me the last 20 minutes. And so after he was going to finish his presentation, our plan was to catch a trolley car and to drive, ride all over the hills and enjoy the magic of that. And then we would go shopping in some of the famous stores I've heard about that, and maybe get a couple school clothes. And then we had a plan to go to Chinatown. We both love Chinese food. And so he was telling me about this authentic Chinese food and how much we'd love it and what Chinatown was like. And we were exciting planning that. And then we'd take a taxi back to the hotel just in time to go swimming before it closed. And then we'd order a hot fudge sundae and watch the late show, stay up late. And we had this whole night planned. And in a 12-year-old's mind, it was, it was just the greatest thing we were ever going to do. 
And so it was going according to plan. I was at the back of the room and he was making his way toward me when all of a sudden he ran into one of his uh, old college friends that he hadn't seen for a long time. But a man that that he talked about, one of his good friends, and he, I'd always heard about the stories and things that they'd done together and how much they loved each other. And this guy was so excited and said, oh, I'm so, I came knowing you were speaking today. We live in the city and I'd like to invite you to come down on the wharf and have some seafood and we'll have a great time and catch up. And my dad seemed excited to see him and said, oh, that, you know, I've got my daughter here also. And he looked over and said, oh yeah, well, she can join us too. <laughs> And I thought, oh, gosh, I just want to spend my night with an old person I don't know and eat seafood, which I hated. And, you know, where's my trolley car? And I just kind of thought our whole plans were, were falling apart. And my dad was embracing him and said, oh, Bob, it's so great to see you. And I would love to do that with you, but not tonight. Cynthia and I have a special date plan, don't we, honey? And he winked at me and grabbed my hand and we ran out the door and I saw my trolley car come back in view and it kind of choked me up. And, and I said, but dad, this is your good friend from college. I'm sure you'd rather spend time with him and you haven't seen him for so long. And he said, are you kidding? I wouldn't miss this for anything. Uh, you'd rather have Chinese food anyway, wouldn't you? Well, let's go catch that trolley car. <laughs> and so this this seemingly small inter you know, exchange between us um, taught me so much about the priority I was in his life and about first things first and about keeping promises and trust. And it served as a foundation for our relationship throughout our lives. And so I think it's important to create meaningful memories with your family and with in your most important roles that can mean a lot to people as they look back on them and kind of serve as the foundation of of trust and love in their life. Yeah, it's how you create your legacy too. That's right. Yeah, that to create a legacy. So at the end of the book, you talk about the, your father's end of life. Before, shortly before he died, he was diagnosed with dementia. How did he and your family like tr- start try to apply those live life in crescendo mentality to this diagnosis? Well, Brett, we had to practice what we were preaching about this because we had three really hard trials right in a row within a couple of years. And one was uh, one was my mom had back surgery that didn't go well, and she ended up in a wheelchair the rest of her life. And about the same time, our father started acting kind of different. He's so passionate and has so much empathy and cares so much, and and he became you know, kind of estranged a little bit and um, not interested in what was going on, apathetic. And he was diagnosed with front temporal dementia, which just stunned us. They always say that if you use your mind, you won't lose it. But apparently that wasn't the case. And there's a lot of hereditary things that go into that. But so we had to face that we had a mother in a wheelchair, physically couldn't do anything and struggling and a father with dementia and us nine kids, you know, we had to determine, you know, how are we going to respond to this? And we pulled together, our faith helped us, our relationships with each other. And we determined we're going to, we're going to get through it and make this the best we can and make life wonderful for our parents, just like they did for us. And so we supported them both and did everything we could to make their life comfortable and well. 
And when uh, our father passed away, it was a difficult thing, but we felt like, you know, he was free of what happened to him and it was, and it was a blessing in the long run. But with our mother, and, and to say something about my dad, we determined that he lived in crescendo until he couldn't do it anymore. And sometimes people, this is important to know because sometimes you do have serious health issues and you have things that are so challenging that take over your life. And so you, you do the best you can. You, he lived, he lived in a crescendo life until he literally mentally couldn't do that anymore. And then with our mother, she was in this wheelchair and, you know, part of it was, you know, she had the usual depression that came from all this and things that happened. And she took control of her life and bounced back in a beautiful way. We needed our mom and she, she knew that she was the matriarch of, you know, nine kids and 55 grandkids and lots of great grandkids. And she, she did what she could to, she did everything that she did before, but in a wheelchair and she still, went to football games and basketball and went to our events and was involved in her lives as much as she could. And she lived in crescendo to the very end. She didn't let that being in a wheelchair and having all these physical ailments determine what she was going to do. It would take her like two hours for someone to help her get ready in the morning. And some people would have thought, just stay in your pajamas. You don't need to dress up. And she, it was important to her to get ready and have things to do that day. And just, just in closing, telling about her, she planned a 12th night party. <laughs> I don't know if you remember in Shakespeare, the play, The 12th Night. 12th Night kind of represents, it's January 12th. And after Christmas is over, there's kind of a letdown. And uh, so January 12th, she would have 12th night parties throughout her life. And she hosted one right before she died. She she planned it. She didn't tell us because we, she knew we would have tried to stop her from doing it because every time she tried to plan a big party or an event, she would end up in the hospital. <laughs> so she did it privately. And when we found out about it, we're like, mom, you can't do this again. You always get sick after. And she said, it's already planned. I can do what I want. It's, you're all <laughs> invited. It's January 12th. Well, she passed away on that day. <laughs> That's the day she died. And so living in crescendo to the very end, planning something wonderful for all of us to come to and enjoy with her family and friends, um, looking ahead from Christmas, where you felt like it's over and some excitement to look forward to on this great 12th night party. And so it was it was fitting to us that that she planned that right. And it happened on the day she passed away. That was 2020. Well, Cynthia, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book? Oh, you're so nice, Brett, for hosting me. It's just on Amazon or Barnes and Noble and everywhere. So you can look up Cynthia Covey Haller. I'm on Twitter and Instagram and, and Facebook. But it's just been out a month, and I'm thrilled that it's out because it was it was my father's. I shouldn't say last and final, really, because that would defeat the crescendo mentality model, right? <laughs> but <laughs> but you can see that, you know, his legacy still is going on through this book. And and his main goal was to help inspire others, to give them hope in their life that that they can do what they plan to do, that they can make their life wonderful, even if it doesn't seem like it is, that they still have a lot to contribute ahead of them and to be hopeful, cheerful and optimistic and to and to go for it. Do it as long as you can. Live in crescendo. 
Well, Cynthia Covey-Haller, thanks so much for time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Brett. Thanks for hosting me. My guest today was Cynthia Covey-Haller. She's the co-author of the book, Live Life in Crescendo. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. Make sure to check out our show notes at awm.is slash crescendo. We can find links to resources where we delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you find our podcast archives, as well as thousands of articles written over the years about pretty much anything you'd think of. And you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLESS to check out for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android iOS, and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who would think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay. Remind you on a list that went podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Mm-hmm.